Welcome to Responding to Life, a podcast hosted by me, Josephine Atlery. Do you ever feel like you could use some guidance when life throws you a curveball? As a corporate meditation teacher, I coach my students to respond to life in a thoughtful way. Life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. By listening to the narratives in this podcast, you will learn from other people's experiences and fast-track the learning curve to get ahead of your own life. Hello, everyone. My name is Josephine Etlery, and welcome to Episode 1 of Responding to Life, a podcast. I'm so excited to begin this journey with all of you. But before I start to share some stories, let me ask you an important question. Do you ever feel like you need help responding to life's curveballs? Right from the beginning, I'm going to tell you this. So make sure you're listening. The value and purpose of this podcast is that it will help you win at life by learning from other people's experiences. This podcast will show you how you can respond to life's curveballs in a more reflective manner from a place of calm and presence versus reacting reflexively, which means you're repeating old patterns and you're coming from a place of elevated emotions. It is crucial for us to examine and revamp the way in which we respond to life because it is our responses that shape the trajectory of our lives and ourselves. There's this adage that goes, life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. As a corporate meditation teacher, Instead, I like to say it's 90% how we respond to it. What's the difference between responding versus reacting? Well, responding versus reacting makes all the difference. Taking time and being thoughtful versus being reflexive and emotional. By analyzing the ins and outs of people's experiences, we will be able to walk away from podcast episodes learning how we can apply positive and thoughtful responses in our own lives, which brings us one step closer to living a more joyful existence. So there you have it. There's a reason why you need to get addicted to this podcast. But before you dive deep with me and get hooked, aren't you a little curious about who I am and why I'm the right person to lead you on this journey of exploration and growth? Well, if I were in your shoes, I would totally want to know more about this person behind the microphone. So allow me to introduce myself. I'm an Asian American woman who currently teaches corporate meditation and curates wellness events in Los Angeles while trying with all my might to write my first book amidst the background of a hectic life. My past careers have included management consulting, catering, starting my own event planning business, and working in business development within the fitness industry. As you can see, I have lived many lives and worn many hats that have afforded me with invaluable life skills and rich experiences that make for some great stories. But more importantly, the breadth of my background provides me with the ability to help people achieve total wellness, addressing the mind, body, and soul. I was born and raised in Chicago, then I moved out east, and now I'm out in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Chicago, and then I moved out east, lived in a bunch of places out there. And three years ago, I moved out to L.A. with my husband, M and my five kids. That's right. You heard me correctly. Five kids. Even saying it out loud makes me tired. 
How do I have the energy to raise my five kids and start this podcast? Well, that is a mystery that perhaps I will reveal to you over the course of this series. In all seriousness, it is actually my children and how my husband and I came to welcome them into our lives that is the impetus for why I felt compelled to share my story with all of you. Due to my husband's battle with a life-threatening illness in his early 20s, back when we had only been dating it for a year, we always knew that we would have to pursue alternative methods to creating our family right from the get-go. Thus, we knew reproductive fertility treatments and adoption were in our future. We endured an arduous 13-year journey that involved in vitro fertility treatments, adoption, and surrogacy. Simply put, our family narrative is quite unique. And since we did the three various ways in which you can bring a child into your life, I have the rare ability to share those journeys with all of you. But don't get it twisted. This isn't a fertility podcast. Yes, during the first half of the season, I will share various anecdotes about my family creation journey and how I responded to the situations that life threw at me. Sometimes I responded in a thoughtful way that led to wonderful outcomes. But many times, you'll hear that I ended up reacting to life emotionally, instinctively, and perhaps not in the best way. My personal stories will offer an honest look at my flawed existence, my heartbreak and loss, but ultimately, my perseverance and positivity. After I conclude my stories, I will move on to interviewing other people who have also faced challenges in life and continue to inspire me. My overarching passion in life has always been to help people live a life of joy whether that meant helping people plan big life celebrations, plan events focused on wellness, teach meditation classes, or help people revamp their fitness and nutrition. This podcast is another avenue for me to reach out to the world and hopefully provide at least one person with the tools to face life courageously, respond to life's moments in a thoughtful manner, and ultimately live inspired and joyfully. So that, my friends, is the gist of who I am and how I came to start this podcast. It's going to be an amazing journey of sharing, being vulnerable, and exploring the complexity of life and how it unfolds, and fundamentally, how we all can live this one life in the best way possible. Okay, beautiful listeners, you've been so extremely patient. I've gone over who I am, how this podcast came to be, and the nuts and bolts of what you can expect. So let's get started already. Fairy tale foiled. There are some moments in life that stay forever ingrained in your mind. Do you have a handful of moments in your life like this? It could be decades later, but the sights, sounds, the feelings of that moment are as fresh as the current day you are living. Usually, these are the moments where big things are happening, something that changed the trajectory of your life, whether you knew it at the moment or not. These are the personal stories I'm about to share with all of you. This first story exemplifies a true life-changing moment early in my life and how I responded to it. It was the fall of 1998. I was 20 years old. It was a brisk September evening in Chicago, and I was sitting in my beat-up red Dodge Shadow in the parking lot of an emergency room. The raindrops were falling rhythmically onto the windshield, creating a soothing, melodic hum that upon any other normal occasion would have brought me a sense of calm. But not tonight. Definitely not tonight. 
I was parked underneath a lamppost that cast an orange glow onto the rain droplets falling on the glass, and all I could bear to do in that moment was just stare out into those drops of water as terror continued to grow within me. The crisp air was starting to seep into the car, but I was immobilized with fear and didn't have the energy to turn on the car and heater. I was waiting anxiously for my best friend to return my call. It seemed like ages later, or perhaps it was just a matter of seconds, when my cell phone rang and broke me free from my debilitated trance. I quickly answered the call and could barely get my friend's name uttered out of my mouth before the tears flooded down my face. I had been holding back these tears for the last hour, and hearing my friend's voice on the other end of the line was the safe haven I needed to finally offload my despair. My best friend instantly questioned what was happening, in alarm and worry when she heard me sobbing. I couldn't get the words to come out of my mouth as I was heaving hysterically at this point. I just sat there crying into the phone while my dear friend listened and waited patiently for me to settle down. I finally calmed down with some big deep breaths long enough to get the dreadful words out of my mouth. The doctors had found something amiss with my boyfriend that was life-threatening. He was in the emergency room because he was in so much pain, which was why I was sitting in the parking lot of the hospital. Once I finally said the words out loud, making it a reality, a deep sadness felt like it was washing over me, swallowing me whole. It took my friend some time to process what I had just shared with her. I told her where I was and that I couldn't get myself to go in. To this day, some 20 years later, I can always count on my best friend, who eventually became the godmother to all my children. She's a comforting soul with a level head on her shoulders. In this moment, she gave me the support I desperately needed and told me she'd wait on the phone with me until I felt like I could get myself into the hospital. At the time, I had only known this woman for three years during our time as undergrads and then dorm roommates at the University of Chicago where we met. Yet in that short window of time, she had grown to be the sister I never had, which is why she was the person I had to call in this terrifying moment. I confessed that I didn't want to go into the hospital because the moment I stepped through those doors, my life with him would change forever. I just wanted to stay out in that parking lot where everything was still normal. In response, she simply told me I had to go in eventually because he needed me. I sat there with her words floating in the air. He needs me. In truth, I needed him at that particular moment. I wanted his magical embrace to make me feel like everything was going to be okay. I wiped the tears from my face and sighed heavily and knew it was time to go in. When I hung up the phone reluctantly, it was as if I was letting go of the anchor that kept me rooted to a safe harbor. I got out of the car and instantly felt the frigid autumn air hit every inch of my skin. The cold raindrops falling on me chilled me to the bone, but at least it washed away the salty tracks of my tears off my face. The automatic doors of the emergency room opened up before me, 
and I hesitated for a brief moment before I could bring myself to take that first step into the next chapter of my life. A few days later, M and I were now at the hospital where he had been admitted. The doctor that M's family decided to work with had just finished reviewing the treatment protocol. I was sitting on the hospital bed holding M's hand while the rest of his family, parents, siblings, and their spouses, and other important relatives, stood standing around his bed. Despite all of the people crammed into his hospital room, M and I just sat in his bed cuddled up next to each other, as if we were the only two people in the room. In the background, his family huddled together after the doctors left to discuss the proposed plan. After a few moments, one of the family members approached me and asked me to take a walk to the cafeteria for a quick break to get a snack. M tiredly squeezed my hand to signal that I should go. Reluctantly, I got off the hospital bed and followed the relative out of the room. I walked in silence down the familiar corridors of the hospital. I had walked the same path hundreds of times on my way to my part-time job that helped me offset the hefty cost of attending college. All those times before, I didn't really notice a thing as I was always rushing between classes and work. This time, however, I wasn't rushing anywhere. There was nowhere to go except to be in the hospital by M's side. We made it to the cafeteria, but I had no appetite these days. Yet I felt like I should get something, as I didn't know when I would leave M's bedside again that day. I ended up buying a granola bar and just held on to it as we began to walk back. We abruptly stopped in the brightly lit atrium lobby for some unknown reason. M's relative was the kind of person who commanded attention just by entering the room, the kind of presence I could only imagine for myself. As M's relative looked me in the eyes, I wanted to look away, as I was so apt to do in times of confrontation, and basically in everyday conversations. There was a long, uncomfortable pause as I waited for what the relative was about to say to me. In a delicate tone, M's relative told me that the road was going to be long and tough for him. I was told that M was going to need all the strength and support he could get in order to beat his illness. At the end of this recap, the relative asked that I consider what was best for M and break it off with him now before he started his treatment, because it would be much harder for him if I were to leave later on. I remember standing there, dumbstruck. Another one of those life moments that are still fresh as yesterday. The beige walls, the loud hum of people walking about, and everything happening around us in the hospital. The bright sun filtering into the lobby from the skylight, and the blow that I had just been served. Was M's relative really asking me to call it quits with the man that I loved? The shock of the suggestion was so profound that my normal tendencies of shying away and not speaking up became exacerbated in the moment. I remember my heart pounding with anger and perspiration beginning to form on my forehead and armpits as images from our relationship flashed before my eyes. I remembered the moment in the hallway of our dormitory floor when I told my best friend 
that I was going to marry M after just three months of dating him. We had been friends for my first two years in college. We then started dating, and right from the beginning, I felt that we would be together forever. As these thoughts raced through my mind in the few seconds of silence that I let linger after the request, I somehow found the nerve to speak up for once in my life. No, I'm not leaving him. It took everything in my being to maintain eye contact as I uttered those words aloud. I was advised to take some time to really mull it over, as it was a lot to consider. No, there isn't anything to think about. I'm staying. And rather than wait for the words to sink in, I began to briskly walk back towards the hospital room, smushing the packaged granola bar in my sweaty palms. I entered M's hospital room and avoided eye contact with everyone in the room. I walked right up to M's bed, and he looked at me wearily, but still mustered up the energy to be concerned about my welfare. He questioned whether I was okay, while he scanned my face for evidence of what was causing me distress. M reached out and gently squeezed my hand, and as I squeezed his hand back, I recall fighting hard to hold the tears. M reached out and gently squeezed my hand. And as I squeezed his hand in return, I recall fighting hard to hold the tears back, determined not to let anyone see how I was rattled to the core. I climbed back into the hospital bed, laid down next to M, and rested my head on his shoulder. Don't worry about me, babe. I'm okay. I'm not going anywhere. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we began one of the hardest years of our lives together. A year of grueling treatments, a fight for life of epic magnitude. I don't have to say spoiler alert here, because as you know, we had five kids together. M beat all the odds and came out on top, such that we got married a year later and we were able to resume where we had left off in life except now we approached life from a completely different perspective. Before, we were just two young adults in our early 20s, living a carefree existence, with our future still unfolding before us, and that feeling of being invincible only afforded to you in your early years. Now, we were battle-scarred, and were very aware of the preciousness and fleeting nature of life. As I am so prone to do, I like to look at life in optimistic ways, and thus, I can look back at that time and say that despite the hardships we endured, at least we had the opportunity to gain a new appreciation for life that has colored the way in which we have lived our lives ever since. Many of us will have at least one, if not more, experiences in life where there isn't really a choice as to whether or not we should face up to a situation, such as with an illness. You can say, F it, I'm not in the mood for that right now, and move on. No, the actual choice in the matter is how you want to carry yourself during the process. Do you want to be mad at life, depressed about the situation and its unfairness? Or will you hold your head up high, with a fighting spirit, with a mind of determination? So in that moment in the parking lot, when I was scared out of my wits, 
what did I do? I allowed myself the time to express all the feelings that were bubbling up for me rather than suppressing them because it's human and it's healthy to have those feelings so that you can then move on. But after some time of stewing in those emotions, I got up and out of that car. I held my head up high in the rain and I led with love. When you lead with love, it dictates what you do in life. So when it's time to face an illness and go into battle, or just face something that is scary, choose to lead with love and keep your head held up high. It helps to start off with a hopeful spirit, because there will be so many times throughout that battle that you will get beaten down and will need to rise up again. And then there was that moment in the hospital. Once again, I led with love. It wasn't ever a question in my mind if I should stay or if I should go. How do you abandon someone you love, especially during a time when they need you the most? No, never entered my mind once. For me, this moment was defining because for most of my life, especially at that moment in time as a 21-year-old, I was more of a quiet, timid, and extremely agreeable person. I never spoke out of turn. I never wanted to rock the boat. At the root of it all, I was a people pleaser and wanted everyone to like me. So for me to not do what was asked of me went completely against the grain of my upbringing and my character. Yet the love that I felt for this man superseded my fear of upsetting people, of people not liking me. When you lead with love, Everything else doesn't even come into play, nor do the other ways of being even make sense. You just have to be willing to ignore all the doubts and fears surrounding you and harness its power. The love that you have within you is so immensely powerful that it can get you through the toughest of times. So there you have it, my friends. Those are the first two snippets of my life that I felt were important to share with all of you straight away, as this sets up the backstory for what happened for me and M over the course of the next 20 years. When you are facing things like fear, death, insecurity, remind yourself to lead with love. Respond with your heart, and with it will come courage. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Responding to Life podcast. If you enjoyed the stories I shared and would like to get better at responding to your own life, then you need to meditate with me. Not in LA, not a problem. Sign up for my newsletter so you can receive a free video guided meditation each month that you can save and always have in your back pocket for those times of stress. Simply go to my website, www.respondingtolifepodcast.com and subscribe to the newsletter when the sign up box pops up. For daily inspiration, be sure to follow my Instagram at Josephine R. Atlery. Thank you again for joining me and I look forward to sharing more stories with you in the coming weeks. <music>